0: This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer brand and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company Traub to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you obviously the listener. Anthony Bono is the global head of retail at CBRE, and there are a few people that travel quite as much and see quite as much retail and brand activity uh, all over the world. And um, I think that his perspective, and particularly the new CBRE's perspective on how they see retail through the lens of data, and even design today, is something that's um, quite fascinating, and I think we should get started. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on the safari.
1: Great to be here, Morty. So Good you, to see you.
0: you fl- fl- flew in from San
1: Diego? Where were you before? Actually, I was in Sicily and I got here last night in Italy and uh, glad to be here. So you're the global head of
0: retail for CBRE. So tell us a little bit about what that means and how that
1: um, makes you probably one of the world's biggest travelers. Ah, well, I do look after... a a pretty broad business. Uh, It's super exciting. Uh, I think what I do, I love it very much. But it's the world for us is real estate. So we live in, you know, commercial real estate and all things related to real estate. So I look after our entire retail advisory and transaction business um, here and abroad. And that means we represent around 1300 retailers or, you know, something like uh, six seven 700 million square feet of GLA of landlord business. So we're very active in the retail space globally. And so you um, have told me for many years now about
0: how the landscape has changed and how in order to react to that, you have changed the whole business, you and your colleagues back at the ranch. So you, most companies in your space are referred to as brokers. And you also obviously are transactional in nature, um, but you also have a a large cadre of businesses that are complementary. So talk to me about why you guys decided to expand away from transaction or uh, not simply transactions, which are obviously still the core of the business. Yeah, What made you have the impulse to go buy and invest in other businesses, and maybe describe some of them and as to what they bring to the table? Well, look,
1: you know, you look at a company like Trab, I mean, that's a pretty inspiring company that's in... A pretty high level of consulting. I wouldn't say we're at we're, we're all in that sector today. Uh, but it is inspiring what you do. And if you think about what we do uh, in commercial real estate, what we learned around 2013, 11, 12, 13, is that the world was in great change in the retail business. And we had retailers and landlords coming to us asking for all sorts of different solutions that they were facing and being challenged with as the as the retail business is going through great um, inflection right now. And at that moment in time, we stopped and said, you know, what kind of business do we want to be if we're going to stay in this space, A? And second, um, how do we become a world-class company in the space? How do we become the leader in the this, in this sector? Hmm. And so for us, that pivot was the moment in time where we said data and analytics is a huge area for investment. Uh, consumer experience, design, and creation of space, great area of investment. Uh, The notion of integrating the construction, project management, uh, redevelopment, adaptive reuse of properties, uh, a big area of focus. We've invested heavily there. And uh, so all of these solution sets that are really different than what you would call leasing or legacy brokerage or legacy transaction are basically fundamental to what we do today. By way of example, when I got in the business you know, over 20 years ago, retailers would come to us and they'd look for transactions. Today, retailers come to us and the first thing they're looking for is data and science, not transactions first, data and science. So uh, that's a very normal behavior today for us as a, as a company. So that's a big reason why we made the pivot. So the
0: business today, <laughs> therefore, has you know the, the, the likes of of Street Sense and your form analytics, Uh, obviously, how do those guys help your overall client service? So, you know, how do they all come to the table? How do you swarm a client and say, look, we got you, and maybe examples of pulling the different levers
1: together? Yeah, I think clients actually want, they want one solution. Clients don't want pieces of solutions. They want one solution. So, it's up to us. It's up to, you know, the collective we to understand what that client is facing, the challenges they're having, and to discern what, what solutions that they really need. Clients look to us to provide one solution, not uh, pieces of the solution. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Street Sense, which is consumer experience. You mentioned Form Analytics, which is predictive analytics. Uh, in some, some cases, those are good solutions for clients. In some cases, they're not. They may need more rudimentary data and analytics so it's up to us to package it, provide the solution set that's going to create the greatest outcome for them. And so we have a lot of people in our company, their job is to listen to what the clients are needing, study what the clients are facing, and to come back with a client with a, with a full body tip to tail solution that can be maybe as simple as leasing in New York City or as complicated as, you know, a client like Italy that we're doing all of their data, science, analytics, project management, site selection. And, and you, you do we, that all over the world for them, correct? Yeah, we've developed a global strategy for them, which you're well aware of. Um, and then many other clients I could point to as example or case in points where we actually do work like that. And so you personally
0: uh, sort of act as the, the um, field marshal for some of those big accounts. Uh, in some instances, you obviously have to have people of your team around the world uh, sort of supplement that. How do you guys divide the world up um, and how do you manage and oversee, let's say, yeah, someone who has you for, as a global client? How does it, how
1: does it work? Uh, it depends, uh, but we do have leadership uh, in each part of the world. So The way we think of the world at CBRE is Americas, so that's one sector which I am responsible for, and then EMEA and then APAC. Asia Pacific are the two other regions. There are retail leaders in each one of those parts of the world. Uh, they report to me. And then below them, they have large uh, teams that actually execute on behalf of clients. So, you know, we're very scalable. If it's a super complicated assignment and it's big and it requires a big team, some of the clients that we have will have well of 100 people working on an account. As an example, a very complex client. Or in some cases, it could be as simple as one or two people uh, looking after that business. It just depends on each region. Mm -hmm. But we're well-versed on serving clients across wide geographies. I will tell you, it is probably one of the hardest things to do in this business, though, is to work uh, with a client across multiple countries like Europe. Mm -hmm. Continental Europe is not easy uh, because each country has its own uh, nuance and proclivity. It's not a simple process. United States is much easier as an example. You've always um, been exposed to real estate and the convergence of
0: obviously retail and real estate. The trend over the last few years, though, has been to claim that uh, retail um, is not something that uh, or that everyone should do or was risky. And we're finding here, and I think in our work with, with CBRE and between Traub and CBRE, um, we have seen that in fact everything seems to have come full circle, whereby now The media value of retail is something that people care about. The fact that um, they don't have to send all their cash or advertising dollars to uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Sergey Brin, maybe, um, and actually take a lease, which is customer acquisition cost, but nonetheless, one that's been around forever. I've actually had to make this speech on this podcast on a few occasions. Mm -hmm. How How does it feel to you from your vantage point? Because, you know, you guys have been in it for forever for decades um you have mm-hmm. sort of experienced this sort of shift maybe away from wanting to open retail and now this sort of this renaissance of channel let's say how, how does it how does the psyche of your client shift
1: from 5 years ago to today and looking forward well we have two clients it's a great question by the way it's um it's it's exactly what we're living in right now but we have two clients that so we have the retailers or the occupiers of the space and then the landlords they have two different visions of the world every day but on the retailer side to your point about change I think this you know 2019 is was a year for me of reinvention and a, uh, a year of people actually taking leadership around reinventing what brands are doing how they're manifesting in space uh, and how the value of the, that space and those retailers has been, I think, uh, re-engineered, let's say. And there's a tremendous amount of energy I see right now in our clients' minds around reinvention, trying different things, and adapting to the digital environment that we're in today. This is happening in a big way in the supply chain. So if you think about how um, you know, retailers are, are reinventing themselves, they're reinventing themselves in space certainly, uh digitally, but also fundamentally in the supply chain, uh, and I think that's been a really large part of our advisory mm-hmm. business yeah. is helping people really rethink the supply chain and there will be more reinvention there, Morty, in my view, over the next five years in micro you know logistics where people are trying to get closer and closer to where people are, and the blending of a store to logistics. Can become, you know, coextensive. Yeah. So it's it's a um,
0: it's a, a new way to almost um, hold inventory and distribute it uh, in, in different ways. But if, if you think of um, pop-ups and you also think of alternate uses within hotels and uh, many other places, uh, stadiums are trying to get into retail and et cetera, um How do you feel that brands account for their leases? Right, because I've always thought, and I don't think people do this, that they should consider their Fifth Avenue flagship, for example, as partially rent expense, but the the remainder of the rent that's you know obviously astronomical uh, in size should be chalked up to marketing, perhaps. And for example, if Montclair, uh the the outerwear brand from Italy, that, who famously just opened a store, which is basically one big freezer. Uh, there's not much product in there, but you can have the experience of going inside this freezer, putting on the jackets, and maybe talking to your friends about it. That's a marketing store, whereas many of the fleet are actually supposed to do business. And and if if you would advise, and maybe you know a bit about this, and maybe there's there's examples you have whereby you know that brand leaders are chalking up certain leases to marketing and putting it in the marketing P and
1: L versus the four wall P and L. Um, and and if and do you agree with me? Yes. That has been happening, and that that does happen. I think two two things. Where one is, you need to be careful on how retailers are putting over allocating that rent expense into marketing because it could be, as we saw in a cycle recently here in New York City, a little bit in um, a couple other global capitals where the rent expense um, got beyond revenues. Yeah, reality. <laughs> And I think you can put marketing in there, but it, then it's, it can be still um, an excessive exposure. I agree. However, um, if you do what you say, which is outlining it in the way that you did, I think it's super intelligent. It's exactly what many retailers are doing. Uh, but I think today what I see more of is more agile use of space. Mm-hmm. So when you mentioned pop-ups, great idea. You know, We co-invested in a brand through an investment fund. Uh, and they acquired a company called Appear Here. This is one example of a pop-up brand uh, concept. It's kind mm-hmm. of the Airbnb of uh, pop-up stores. Very interesting concept. And Appear Here actually has a plug-and-play model for these, you know, what I'll call pop-up stores, both uh, legacy brands, you know, corporate legacy brands, and also uh, startup brands. I think uh, that whole space is kind of being formed as we speak. Right. But As long as the retailer is agile, mm-hmm. yes they should be doing that yeah it's
0: it's a, the, the example that i have of people allocating retail about uh, you know into marketing buckets or or into their own PLs is in dubai dubai mall as you know which is 5% of the gdp of dubai it's mm. such a big business the it's also one of the biggest tourist hubs in the world uh, and the brands in there are mostly franchised They are not owned directly by the brands themselves. So it's a third party taking a lease on behalf of a global brand. And oftentimes those brands have been turning to, or sorry, those franchisees have been turning to those brands and saying, Hey guys, if I put a store in Dubai mall, it's going to benefit you in Shanghai, in London, in New York, it's a global brand lease. But actually I'm getting hit for it locally. I don't benefit from what happens in New York and Shanghai. So you need to subsidize by lease. So that's a sort of a concrete example of where I think you see the division of labor, but when it's two different companies who have jurisdiction over the unit that's being um, that's being uh, uh, I uh, leased. I
1: agree. I agree with that. I think it's interesting.
0: So you've been. You, I've heard you speak about uh, this term adaptive reuse in big boxes. Well, can you explain what that means to everybody?
1: Yeah, adaptive reuse in shopping center environments, retail consumer environments is the reinvention of space and repositioning of space. So, you know, retailers that we represent today look at their boxes that they, they occupy. Um, there's lots of examples that have been well-written about this staples in the office category. Um, you know, uh, Petco in the, in the pet category, for example, Petco is, I think what they're doing is pretty interesting is they're looking at their portfolio And they're investing in adaptive reuse of their existing space, sometimes shrinking it, sometimes repositioning it. Uh, They're introducing more of a healthy lifestyle, organic offering. They're, They're becoming more of a dominant organic offering in the pet category, a pet food category, pet supplies. And then we'll adaptively reuse space to kind of refresh and reintroduce their brand. So, could that mean uh, subleasing
0: half the store to an adjacent or similar product or literally cutting the the
1: box in half and subleasing it and having a different door? It could. Um, My experience with that, our experience with that has been hard. And I'll tell you why. Because um, a lot of the boxes, Kohl's Kohl's has been the one that's promoted it the most publicly. But if you look at the office supply categories and the others. The problem is the boxes, the demising cost of these boxes from a construction standpoint for a lot of the retailers and landlords is difficult in the way that they've been configured. So what we do see is sometimes uh, some of the retailers looking to do shop and shop or they'll put a, they will lease inside of their space a concept, for example, that will sublease space inside, more like a co-marketing concept. And Dix has been exploring that as an example. Dick's Sporting Goods.
0: We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry, and it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. So the retail science solutions that you talk about, therefore, how do those scientific solutions uh, act in the day-to-day of your business? Can you give a few examples of how that data is brought to life in selecting uh, locations, for example, or getting out of locations, I, I also believe?
1: Yep. It, um, it's the holy grail for what we do. Uh, for And it, it's the holy grail around confirming your instincts. When you, Morty, for example, you're, you've study retail all over the world, you look at a location, My guess is nine times out of 10, you'll look at a location and have an instinct whether or not that is the right location for a brand. What the data and analytics does is it confirms that thinking that you have.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And it can be as sophisticated as predictive. What I mean by that is we actually currently work with 150 retailers today where when we look at a site, we can predict on a probability, on a bell curve, around 90% probability of what the store's productivity will be. That's a very sophisticated model, and we do that for many brands today. And that's what you need there is you need a customer data to to actually do the algorithms for those kinds of models. But by and large, what retailers are looking at is more prescriptive analytics. What I mean by that is it's not predicting. It's actually just framing up what exists in that region or that market. And we use a lot of mobile data now that's anonymized, where we actually study what you know brands, customers are doing in a market, where they're coming, where they're going to, uh, and whether or not those locations on the street or inside the mall uh, can be kept, relocated, yeah. or repositioned. It's a big part of what we do every day. In fact, I would say this. If you think five years from now, two years from now, four years from now, somewhere in that region, if a retailer is not using data and analytics in a way that actually forms their view of what to do, I I would be worried. I would be worried about that brand because there's only so much a brand can do instinctively. And more and more, I think, people really need to see the data and then confirm their instincts, which a lot of times is 90%. There's a three-dimensional flywheel
0: that I think comes into effect. I mean, the digital natives, they started online and now they want to open retail and now they want to go to the department stores and have wholesale. the so wholesalers said, okay, we have wholesale, but we should maybe open retail and let's go online. They all have to look at the world from three completely different vantage points and get to a stasis whereby they have a toe in all three. I think everyone is actually racing towards that three-dimensional flywheel and not everyone really has it, uh, which is why though I think some of the incumbents, the ones that are you know large in scale that do have a multi-channel strategy are actually in pretty good shape if they can prune back. The over-expansion that they have managed to, to yeah put a great into.
1: example of that is like Sephora like look at how many stores they have and how well they do both digitally and in stores in my view they make some of the best decisions on yep. where to go yep. you know so they really understand it the virtual reality world um, and other technology it, let's talk about
0: sort of the the way out there technology one of our colleagues recently saw a hotel presentation hotel rooms being displayed. Uh, Through a virtual reality headset, so you can actually see what the hotel room looks like without just seeing a two dimensional photograph. In your travels, you must see crazy technology all the time. And and oftentimes, you know, that technology is here, but it hasn't sort of been distributed to the rest of the world yet. Is is there any interesting technology that you have scratches the surface of your interest that could appear a few years from now?
1: We actually, it's. We produced a report called Retail 2030. One of the things that we, you can study that report and the research, it's online, but one of the predictions in that report is that this whole idea of visually stimulated uh, experiences, both, let's say, hospitality or in uh, entertainment, will be highly customized. What I mean by that is you'll be able to use video uh orientation and look at look and watch things that are highly customized to you Mm -hmm. anywhere you are yeah as you as you travel and go and there's a lot of investment a lot of capital in that space right now in terms of companies that are building those uh, technologies out if you look at that retail 2030 report it talks about that i have to say based on what you told me here morty though is I'm dying to go look at that hotel you were just talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because <laughs> really, I have not seen that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think also
0: augmented reality, being able to see through a headset, you know, signage done differently when walking through a shopping center yeah. or walking through a store, uh, which is also then personalized to the individual, um, will also make the brick and mortar experience come to life more. Yep. which will, which will be interesting. So coming back to um, a little bit on on your design and placemaking. Uh, division. It's really a joint venture uh, that you guys invested in store in, in Street Sense, but this, the storytelling effect. I mean, the idea that a, a a legacy brokerage firm would have a creative side to the house that was um, quite a you know, not insignificant team. Talk about that. I think you also are on the board of that company. I mean, how mm-hmm. does that how does that come to life in practice? And what are some of the things you've been most proud of about actually having that sort of right brain? Uh, You know, left brain is very transactional, but bringing the right and left
1: brain together with with those guys. Well, first, I think we know who we are as a company at CBR. We definitely know who we are. We know our culture and we're rooted in the real estate business. And, you know, transactions have been our history now into advisory. When we looked at Street Sense, which is a creative collective of 200 people here, here and also in Spain, we admired what they built and and. Are doing for brands and we understood it wasn't in our dna that their dna was really around creativity and from tip to tail they can curate a brand they can do placemaking in retail environments uh, they can create hospitality office workplace uh in ways that you know we we really don't have that skill set so we invested heavily in that company with an eye toward using them as our subject matter expert when clients wanted us to do that. Mm -hmm. So right now we're involved with them with, you know, many different examples um, that I can point to. One is a, they've curated a a bison burger concept, (laughs) believe it or not, from a gentleman who's the second largest owner of Buffalo in the world. And he's opening a bison burger chain across the United States called best bison. And they have curated the brand The identity, the menu, the product offering, the orientation of where the brand should go, um, from tip to tail, end to end, what the store looks like, how it's built, how people dress. It's really a great skill set. And they can do that for any brand uh, in terms of creating the brand. What do you think about the notion of the the gentrification of everything?
0: Right. So uh, I often think of um, when you travel around this country and you might go to Columbus, you might go to Austin, you could go to Portland everyone sort of says this neighborhood is the Brooklyn of, right? The Brooklyn of, of, pick a city. Mm -hmm. Um, And often behind the the Brooklynization of uh, these cities are clever design firms or architects or placemaking entities that help curate a central nucleus or environment around which real estate can then thrive, can then grow. Because without that sort of central sort of podium, as it were, or or nucleus, um, it can't happen. How have you felt that some of the things that you've seen or projects around the country that have had that kind of mindset have created immense value potentially in the surrounding areas?
1: Yeah. And by the way, this is something Street Sense does as well. I know. That's why I thought about it. Yeah. They actually are in cities and consulting with cities and districts around creating inspired environments where actually – Reinvention and gentrification can occur. This is happening here in New York, the work that they're doing in Queens and throughout the better part of, of a few boroughs here. You know, I think of a town where I, you know, I live in downtown San Diego, historic district called Little Italy. In that district, in fact, it was redesigned, reprogrammed, and redeveloped around an actual strategic plan. And now it's arguably one of the hottest millennial markets. Um, in the country, this is occurring too in in other markets that you wouldn't think of. Houston, for West example, West Palm Beach is having this happen yep. as well. Yeah, so I think it's a it's a big uh, it's a big consulting piece for the firm um, and what Street Sense does for sure. Do you think that the uh, cities that are obviously flourishing,
0: um, you know, one might call them B cities. I, I don't like that term, but you know, the cities that are not the mega cities in any diff- given uh, country. Um, they're they're all experiencing uh, a renaissance. Also, maybe because young people have a different lifestyle desire, they don't necessarily want to be raising children in you know uh, a twelve hundred square foot apartment in a big city, uh, which is obviously very expensive. And the lifestyle changes uh, of of um, parenting, for example, do you see any um, shifts? Do you have any reports that talk about sort of the the psychographic shifts? Within, within the consumer, which leads to the shifts in real estate over time.
1: Yes, it's true what you say about the, I'll call it the millennial or the younger generation that's manifesting in cities and developing these attitudes related to spending that everybody talks and writes about. Uh, and yes, we do, we actually produce all of the cities in terms of employment. The way to think about this is the way, where are millennials uh, working where's the greatest amount of growth of their work environment and where are they going? So you wouldn't think of these markets, but Boise, Idaho, you know, Mm -hmm. for example, is, you know, one of the highest growth markets for this consumer in the United States today. Houston's number one in the country, but it's also a myth. Actually, there's a myth around this as well. And that is that the sub, the myth here is that the suburbs are, are not growing and that's actually not true it's fairly, uh, it's fairly equal between the cities and the suburbs. In our view, a lot of the millennials that you see today will end up, uh, as their life stage gets um, further along, more delayed than, say, our generation, my generation, uh, they will end up uh, in some part of their life in, in suburban environments mm-hmm. because they're going to need to. And so suburban environments, I would not bet against either. So one of the things in that, the U.S. that is that's a U.S. Yeah, yeah I,
0: I understand that. One one of the things that I've always found about this country is that it's um, it's so big and has historically been so powerful that m- many business people never felt the great need to leave this country. Our business has been global as long as I've been here. Mr. Traub was, you know, deeply enamored with global the idea of global brand. Um, you travel uh, and are overseeing you know the entirety of your retail business globally what inspires you who's doing something in i don't know asia uh europe um, south america things that have sort of you've recently seen maybe this year that have given you pause said wow that's a really interesting way of doing things
1: i look i think uh, you know it takes a certain character to like being in retail on a global basis but i think once you've got the bug <laughs> It's hard to get rid of it. So I I absolutely love it. Uh, You know, what I love about studying retail globally and working with clients across the globe is that each country that you're working in has a different stage, different life stage, different stage of maturity. And you learn a lot from that. You learn a lot on how those countries and people are behaving. For example, uh, in India, you know, it's it's an exploding uh, consumer market. Uh, the middle market's just becoming, coming into its own. And, you know, we work with Ikea there and we've, you know, helped them with their expansion in that part of the world. I have never in my life seen so many human beings in love with a brand waiting in line for days to get into the Ikea store. And I thought to myself, gosh, that would never happen in, you know, Long Island, right? They would, people would be thrilled about it. But look at how much they love that brand. What can we learn from that? Yeah.
0: Well, people in, people in Long Island are spoiled for choice. And in India, still, yeah. know, there are as many um, choices of Western brands in India, which is probably why. And also, the value is fantastic.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you learn from that and you take it from place to place. For example, I hear a lot of times people say to me, well, online retail is, effect, is hurting real estate. And as a result of online retail being so high and it's growing, it's just going to end up, you know, damaging real estate forevermore. Well, if you look at a market like South Korea, for example, where online penetration is very high, the shopping environments in South Korea are incredibly strong. Yes. Shopping center environments, they're mixed use, they're entertainment very driven. Good point. And so they're really, really healthy. So I tell people that's not the way to think about yeah. the future go to South Korea and study what's going on there, and you'll come back and think about how to reinvent your shopping center in you know, Long Island. There are a few concepts that I can think of, such as Kidzania,
0: mm-hmm. which is the Mexican uh, co- company that does these villages for um, young people to play around with their anchors in malls all over the world, and they've recently come to the United States, and I think they're actually opening at the American Dream, if I'm not mistaken, in New Jersey. And you know, also the funny enough, Mexico was the birthplace of luxury cinemas, which are also all over the world. I mean Sinopolis was the founder of those ideas, and then they were knocked off in different forms very well in, in other markets. But it was interesting how those concepts, you know, started elsewhere, proliferated elsewhere, uh, with the notion of you know family entertainment or FEC at the core. And uh, they're sort of the new anchors of the 21st century, if you will. Are there any, are there any sort of other family entertainment co- concepts that you've seen that um, have been interesting?
1: Well, if, like food and beverage, for example, think about Chinese restaurants, you know, think of Din Tai Fung. Have you seen that brand on the West Coast at all? I have not. So far and away, the highest volume Chinese concept that I've seen anywhere in the world it's, they're a Chinese family, a Taiwanese family, one of the best restaurateurs in China, entered the West Coast of the United States. They have some of the best performing stores anywhere. I'm sure someday they'll come here uh, to New York, but it's a great example of someone who's manifested a great product. And I think in the food and beverage sector, you see a lot of that as well. Um, yes, yeah, so Italy. I mean, as, as much as you're able to
0: speak about whenever there's an Eatly, um, just like whenever there's an equinox um the equinox and the idley so sort of end up being this sort of anchor of activity and and food and beverage and exercise and lifestyle how how have you found working with that group and how, what they have done uh to the surrounding areas once they've opened a store
1: they are they're unique i would say a very unique uh brand globally and I, I would say for them and what i would say to everyone listening here is they um they are decidedly an italian company and their culture is uh very very italian uh, they are pure in many ways in their uh product and food offering what they do is super complicated but incredibly simple mm-hmm. and doing simple is hard <laughs> yes and uh what they provide a very simple uh product that is, pure and very italian and i think the north american market has accepted them incredibly well you know same with brazil uh they're already strong in in western europe and of course italy uh so it's it's one of those things where people are looking for simplicity and pleasure and health because it's it's a healthy oriented uh brand it's not a a brand that's producing uh products that would be harmful
0: yeah yeah, it's almost a wellness brand, ironically, right? Um, so I'll give you the last word. What What are the things that um, are interesting to you, exciting to you? What do you, What are you hopeful for, energized for uh, over the next period?
1: Well, I'm going to stay with the theme of reinvention. I think we're in a retail period where legacy brands are reinventing themselves digitally. Native brands that Trab is, you know, super intelligent about. They're, re- they're creating reinvention every single day. I think also what's interesting about our industry, what's kind of fascinating to me is I think we're in this moment where this is a, a, a really a question for real estate and a question for retailers is human capital. Mm -hmm. Getting the right human capital in your company, in your organization, it's actually not an easy thing to do today because of the change that's going on. And I find many times in my role that I see people who are, let's say more senior, more experienced and have great legacy experience. And then I see, um, you know, the, the inventor that's, you know, 25 years old, uh, and that person has incredible ambition and super fired up about what he or she's doing, but they don't have the experience of how to run the business or the company. It's this interesting nexus right now where I don't see the The collection of talent i think if you're a really talented person uh today and you have good skills in either one of these sectors and can blend them uh both in real estate or in retailing it it, to me it's a fascinating time yeah i
0: i agree with you this notion of cross-functional again keeps on coming up here and the idea that it's actually articulated by you in a way that it hasn't been uh, spoken of here yet which is this notion that it's incumbent executives who are having to train contender young up-and-coming Gen Zs and millennials who not only don't sort of understand or have the experience but actually don't have that much respect for how to keep the trains running on time. And they think that everything that's been done in the 20th century is, you know, for the old people. And in fact, each one have to respect the other side. You have to understand what the young people need and want and why they care about the things they're talking about. But the young people also have to respect, you know, the, the wisdom and the way of doing things of those who've been doing it for a while. As long as they talk, don't talk past each other, then you can run the business properly. But it's quite hard to do, which is what we end up having to help a lot with. Indeed. So, um, Anthony, uh, it's been a great, um, a great time to have you here. Uh, CBRE is truly uh, a remarkable company and we're thrilled to, to be friends and to be close. And um, thanks so much for doing the safari with us. Thank you, Marty. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the Safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.